You're listening to the Office Free Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Spencer, and each week I'll be taking you behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who have escaped traditional offices and built digital empires based on their expertise. everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Office Free Entrepreneur Podcast. My guest today is a very good friend of mine, Liam Martin, who is the CMO and all-around badass of a company called Staff.com. Now, I've known Liam for almost 10 years now. Uh, we've gone both gone through various iterations of our career, but Staff.com has really taken off over the last, I want to say like five, seven years or so, and really grown into quite a large company, and then really hit a big growth curve last year with everybody coming online. And so I wanted to bring him in today and just kind of, you know, everyone talks about like the crazy journeys and all that stuff. And, and you know, last year, obviously his business hit one of those crazy uh, growth curves, which is pretty exciting to do. So I'm, I'm really excited to jam on it. But uh, Liam, before we get going, you want to tell everybody kind of how staff makes a dent in the world and then we'll just take it from there? Sure. So uh, staff.com and our other product, Time Doctor, effectively same thing is a time tracking tool for remote teams and remote workers. We've been running that for approximately 10 years. We run what's called a remote first organization, meaning we have employees in 43 different countries all over the world, but we have no physical office. And our tool helps facilitate remote teams and remote communication and interaction throughout the world. Our mission statement is that we want to basically help facilitate remote work and help it proliferate across the planet. Um, obviously, right. over the last year, COVID has been very helpful to that movement. I almost kind of declared our mission statement done <laughs> because we just did everything <laughs> right. we needed to have done, right? Everyone's working remotely right now. Um, but we have kind of reorganized that mission statement a little bit. And we're really now just super excited about remote work and helping that process become better, whether it's with our tools like staff.com or Time Doctor, or even our conference running remote, which we've been running for the past four years, which is all about building and scaling remote teams. Nice, man. So let me ask you, you know, and I, I always like going back to the beginning. Did you always kind of like, like that's such a big movement. Like I, I'm, I'm sure when you were seven years old or six years old that you didn't think about remote work. I mean, we both grew up in a time where the world was a lot more analog than it is today. Like, did you always kind of know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and a business owner kind of, cause I mean, you're the definition of escaping the office, right? Like that's your whole mission is to get people out of the office and remote. So like, where did that, where did that kind of impetus start uh, growing up, did did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Were your parents business owners, or, or what's the story there? My father was an entrepreneur, but ended up going and uh, working for the public service, working for the government later on in life. Okay. I think that there's a lot of people that are entrepreneurs, but then because it's too difficult, or they don't have the right circumstances, or the timing was wrong. They weren't able to pursue that. I also think that entrepreneurship in general really isn't taught anywhere. So right. entrepreneurs are really made, but then there's no place for them to 
develop, which is quite unfortunate and something that I think that we need to fix in the education system. But for me, I had that same entrepreneurial kind of spark. So I've never been able to work in a job for longer than three months. I've never been able to hold one down. And I realized that I either needed to start my own business or effectively become homeless because there was just no kind of in between for me, unfortunately. And I learned that at a very early age, which is not something right. that the education system teaches you, right? The education system teaches you, well, you should get a job, right? That's like the goal right. for everyone. And it's not for a pretty big percentage of the population. I'd probably say <laughs> five to 10% of the population should not be a employee and we just don't have that framework in place which is which is really quite a shame and i was so thankful that i was able to discover that at a younger age so so how did you kind of get that like so your dad was an entrepreneur and you know eventually goes into government but like how did you develop a spark because i mean i'm the only one in my family nobody else is like me like i i had no idea. I mean, I remember picking up an entrepreneur magazine and being like, what's an entrepreneur, you know, at, at you know, the bookstore in town. Right. So that was like as close to that idea. Like I come from factory workers. So, so where did you get that spark as a kid to just say, Hey, look, this is the path I've got to take just because I know myself well enough. Cause I mean, self-awareness at a young age is not very common, especially that young of an right. age. Right. So what was that like for you? Like, where did you get that spark then? I don't want to um, embarrass or date you, Brad, but I remember way back in the day when you were running the sandwich shop. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You do, you right? do me in the early days. Yeah, that's, tw- that's, 2010, man. That's that's entrepreneurship 101. Um, I would probably say, for me, where I got the spark was um, it was really just ingrained in me, which is what I was kind of alluding to before. That it was very difficult for me to hold down jobs. And I would right. always be, I remember I was selling water coolers door to door, door to door salesman. And for anyone that wants to learn how to sell, just become a door to door salesman for a summer. Um, you, you just work on commission, right? It's, it's very hard. You get the door slammed in your face 95% of the time. And, uh, but you do learn how to pitch products to customers and get them to close. And I was selling these coolers door to door. And then I realized it would be a lot easier if I just went inside of a business. And instead of doing a huge pitch to sell one water cooler, I could sell like 40 water coolers to a big office. So I just started doing that. And I tried that. And it worked. And I became the best water cooler salesman in uh, my (laughs) office. And actually, I think in the entire area, like the three cities that they were defining as a territory, I was number one. And then they came to me and they were like, hey, so you're not allowed to sell water coolers commercially. You're only allowed to sell them residentially, right? You're just not in this, right? Like it's, you're not allowed to do it. Uh, We don't have the license to do that. And I was like, right. well, that sounds really stupid because I was working like half the time and making 10 times the money. And I was selling these water coolers. I think I got a $500 commission on each cooler. I think I remember one month I, I cleared like 15 grand, which was great. Oh, man. And How old are you 19. at this point? Like, is this like 19? 19, 19. Okay. 19. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
But then they stopped me from doing that. And then I'd have to hustle. And maybe I'd sell like two water coolers a day if I could, you know, really grind out doing it door to door. Um, right. And I just realized, well, this is stupid because I could just go in, work one day a week and make 20000 you know, a, a month. So what I just did is... I would sell these water coolers, just kept on doing exactly what I was doing before, selling them commercially. But instead of filling out one order for 30 water coolers, I'd send, I would fill out 30 individual purchase orders for 30 individual water coolers (laughs) that all just went to the same address. And they found out about that another month or two later and fired me. Um, Oh my gosh. I just disagreed with how the process worked. So you know, it's either build your own process or be enslaved by someone else's. And I just chose not to be enslaved by someone else's and it ended up getting me fired. So, so were you doing this while you were in college? Cause I know when we met, I think you were using, you were running the, the tutoring business, I think is what it was mm-hmm. like when we first met, was this like how you kind of got into that or like, what's the, what's the tie in? Cause that's a very different business model than a door to door sales type gig. Yeah. I think that was like my first year of university and undergrad. Um, when I was doing that. So I just didn't really do anything at that point. And then in between there, after that, I started a sporting goods company where I was selling. Um, it's not really important what kind of sporting goods that I was selling, but I was basically importing. It's kind of like the first version of drop shipping before this whole thing, before this whole crazy stuff happened. There was no Amazon, right? It kind of existed, but it was just for books. And right. I built manufacturing supply chaining out of Pakistan and was importing them into Canada and then shipping them throughout Canada and the United States to different retailers. And that was pretty good as a summer job. I think I made 50 grand my first summer and then uh, we're running this sporting goods company. And then it completely collapsed the next summer. Um, the lesson I learned there was I was selling the sporting goods to individual retail locations. Right. And the there's a, a thing in the retail industry called a um, a keystone markup, which is okay. By like a, if you buy a candy bar for a dollar, the minimum amount that the corner store should be selling the dollar is thirty cents, or the the candy bar is thirty cents. So a keystone markup is like a two hundred percent markup. And all okay. of these guys, I was selling them, I'm selling the skate guards, which is the big product that we were selling to all of these retail locations. And I misunderstood the markup. And then they all had to produce massive discounts for their next season. They all loved the product, but they actually had to sell it at way cheaper. And then they couldn't buy it for me at wholesale for the same price that I could the year before. So I got a whole bunch of orders that came back but they were effectively at cost and just the entire business kind of collapsed in on itself because I miss, I mispriced the product. That's a good lesson to have right there. You, you, you sell something too well and you grow yourself out of business, right? That's exactly <laughs> I it. think we've all, no, that's, that's cool. So, so this, so it kind of sounds like to me, you've got really a story and as, cause I didn't, even, I didn't know either of these stories actually. Um, uh, which is always fun when I learn and discover things about my friends that uh, I didn't realize. Um, but it sounds like to me, and this is kind of something I've noticed uh, ever since we've been friends, is that you always have a knack for finding, I don't want to say like angles, but like kind of like new distribution, like a new way to look at a, a proven business model. And I think that's kind of kind of something which, you know, I remember with the tutoring thing, 
like I thought this at the time and I didn't have the right, like, you know, mental models at the time to really articulate this, but I noticed that like, it's always like a function of connecting two people together and making a spread. Right. Which I think that's, that's, you know, our arbitrage 101, right. With, with retail or, you know, e-commerce is basically a version of that in one form or another, you buy it for X and sell it for Y and pocket the difference. But do you think that kind of plays into your story that you just have like an eye for seeing those opportunities? Cause I know some of the things you've shared with me over the years that kind of, they, they make a lot more sense now that I see this pattern where it's like, Hey, mm-hmm. I see something that's different than the status quo. And then I just kind of go in and crush it because I'm willing to look at it from a different set of lenses. Do you, is that how you see it? Or is it just something you do naturally? Uh, not necessarily naturally. I'd say I have two core questions slash methodologies that I implement whenever I'm going to make any type of business decision. The first one is first principles methodology. Uh, right. And a lot of people in tech kind of do this. It's any, anytime you want to disrupt a market, you focus on first principles, which is generally um, the most the most famous example is probably Elon Musk when he built SpaceX. Right. So he was going to buy rockets from the Russians to be able to get a green, um, like a, a small plant flown all the way to Mars. And his belief was he could inspire another space race by literally just getting like a small plant and landing it on Mars. He thought that that could be a big moment in human civilization that could move society forward. But then when he started looking at the price of these rockets, he realized, oh, wow, okay, well, for the price of me buying the 12 rockets that I would need to test and get this little greenhouse to Mars, I can actually do all of the R&D to make a rocket myself and then once i actually have all the rd in place i can make a rocket for one tenth the cost of what everyone else is making a rocket at so right that's first principles is breaking down the actual core components of producing a product and going past all and then inside of that inside of first principles thinking uh is a question that i always ask myself which is what what assumptions am I making from my conclusions? So I'll give you that one again. What assumptions am I making from my conclusions? So for the Elon Musk example, the assumption was you couldn't make a rocket for one-tenth of the cost because there are all these R&D costs that go into it, but you actually boil down what a rocket is all about, right? It's like maybe the rocket actually is... $300,000 worth of like materials, but then you just need to be able to reorganize those materials in a more efficient way in order to actually produce a rocket that's much cheaper that maybe is like $300,000 worth of core materials and maybe another $300,000 worth of R&D or whatever it might right. be. So I always try to analyze the conclusions that everyone is coming to and ask myself, well, what are people assuming inside of that conclusion? Right, people working in an office. Well, no, you can't work remote. <laughs> That's ridiculous. No one can work from their home. Uh, you know, they'll not be productive. They won't actually do what they're supposed to be doing. They'll be screwing off. They'll be. Right. You know, they won't have the right equipment in place. All these other types of things. There's no way that you can build a business remotely. 
Uh, and there's no way that you can build a big business remotely. Uh, that's absolutely wrong. The largest IPO this year is going to be Coinbase. You probably know, most of your listeners probably know what that is. Coinbase is like a cryptocurrency app where you can buy Bitcoin, you can hold it in a digital wallet. It's right. going to IPO at $100 billion this year. It is going to be the largest IPO of 2021. And for the first time in the history of the SEC, they have allowed Coinbase to say that their corporate headquarters is nowhere. They're a remote first organization. Um, oh, wow. I didn't huge, know that. That's right? cool. Like, that's a yeah. real tide change of how we're looking at how businesses are built. And the future is going to be remote work isn't just going to be a nice to have. Everyone will have to work remotely because remote is just a more efficient business model. And anyone that is working inside of an office will be at a strategic disadvantage because it will be more expensive to facilitate that labor. That's interesting. I, I never, I never really thought of it like that. I mean, I, especially I didn't know that about Coinbase with the remote, you know, no headquarters thing. I, I really didn't. Uh, that's amazing, actually, because uh, that's a pretty big uh, regulatory hurdle to jump over for, you know, bigger companies to to do that. It's like, yeah, we still have a a, a paper address, you know, theoretical address, rather than no, we actually are anywhere. Like, like that's the that's it officially. Um, that's pretty cool. So like with that first principles, cause you know, we could nerd out on this quite a bit. Um, when it comes to like assumptions, how, how do you go about tactically using that? Cause like that's, I, I wrote down that question. Cause like, I've never thought about that as like backing out the assumptions based on the conclusion. I've always kind of done it the other way is said like, based on these assumptions, what conclusions can I draw? Kind of like an inductive type reasoning mm -hmm. situation. So how do you go about like let's let's take this tactical a little bit. How would you go about analyzing that in a, you know, like obviously like your event didn't probably happen as much as you thought with the running remote conference. Like so what assumptions are backed out of that that you could then pivot? Like let's try to maybe get a little tactical mm -hmm. for a minute if that if that works for you. Sure. So I mean it goes back to what you asked before which is how do I find opportunities for wealth? And generally, right. true wealth is only figured out by a disruption of an entire market. So if everyone goes left and you ask why, you might not want to go right. That's effectively what I do all the time. Is like, okay. oh yeah, well, everyone goes left. Everyone goes left. Why? Why does everyone go left? Can you explain it to me? And if it's not a good explanation, then it's like, hmm, there's an opportunity that I could, maybe I could just go right. And that might be a much better model than going left. So that's kind of the, the, the high level. Bringing it down to something like running remote, the conference that we run, uh, that when we first started that, one of the biggest conclusions that, uh, or something that I was making inside of my conclusions was there had been a whole bunch of conferences that had tried to build a conference about remote work and had failed. There were actually four that had been built and by relatively right. large companies and they had all failed. And that was one of my biggest problems was, well, maybe they're all failing because of, because there's not enough interest in this particular subject. Um, maybe they're all failing because they weren't targeting the right type of demographic. And what we did is when we analyze all those different companies, 
we are so those different conferences, we recognized that they were going after a very high level type of person. So they were going after, um, like, let's say, HR directors of 10,000 plus seat organizations. And those okay. people weren't ready to go remote yet. They were the people that needed to go remote the most, but they weren't the ones that were ready yet because there were these institutional assumptions that remote work wouldn't work for large scale organizations. So they were trying to hammer up against an organization that just didn't, wasn't interested in going around in the first place. So what we did right. is we said, let's forget about that. Let's only focus on tech bros that want more freedom in their lives. Um, I think it's quite literally the, the name of your podcast, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, uh, yeah which is exactly. Like, Tech bros that like, let's say have companies of like 10 to 50 people and they want to build a business and have enough money to live a very independent life, but they are also willing, they're not willing to sacrifice their lives in order to build that type of business. And right. we recognized that it was pretty much, there was just a huge concentration of what are now defined as remote first companies, meaning companies that have their location based anywhere. We focused on that single avatar and we did pretty well. We had about 260 people for the first event. We had almost 700 people for the next event. We were going to have over a thousand for our third one, but then COVID canceled that. Uh, and now we've gone online and we've had, I think, 21,000 people to the online events over the last year. It's incredible, man. It's so incredible. Like just taking that assumption. I, I think that's, that's, yeah, I'm going to have to ponder that one. That's going to, that's going to throw my afternoon for a good, uh, I'll go out on a walk and, and think about that one. Cause I think that's something that, you know, just looking at the assumptions, I, I, I just flip it around. I mean, that's, that's a really useful tool. Um, I, I dig that a lot. So kind of going back, you know, your dad, you know, I, I, I want to always, I always want to kind of see this journey because like, obviously, you know, you've done a lot over the last 10 years and, and you didn't start out this big, uh, with staff and everything. Like what was that transition point that got you started on this journey 10 years ago? Like where, what inspired, cause obviously like 10 years ago, we're talking right around 2010. I mean, a lot of people, the whole Starbucks culture was still just getting started with everybody mm -hmm. working on laptops and stuff like that. Right. So there wasn't a lot of the companies that <clears throat> like the tech platforms, you know, for website building, I mean, it was WordPress, but even a lot of the themes and, you know, softwares, I don't even know if Shopify was invented back then. I'm not sure when Shopify was in, uh, came out, but a lot of companies. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what kind of got you started? Cause I mean, seeing that remote first lifestyle back then, is, is, you know, I, I mean, you'd, you'd be a fortune teller. Like, I don't think anyone would have predicted the last year with as much change. I think we had like five years worth of change in one year, right? With how many people have gone remote and won't go back. Um, so what kind of inspired that start to say, hey, look, we're going to create this remote first company, like, you know, when nobody else has that at the time, really? Well, so... There's, there's two answers to that. There's a personal, and then there's also just more of a strategic, large scale one. 
So ironically enough, Shopify is now actually remote first. They shut down all their offices and they're entirely remote as an organization. They have no more head office, um, wow. which is awesome. I had, Toby is a mentor of mine and um, is, is a fellow Canadian entrepreneur. <clears throat> and I remember him telling me at the very beginning of Shopify that he wishes he could have gone remote, but he would have never been taken seriously because right. just you won't invest in a company that has no office, right? Like no one's going to do right. that, which is, right. which is changing now uh, with companies like Coinbase and Shopify and Spotify and Salesforce all going remote, you know, full on, which is, which is very exciting. The, I just wanted more freedom in my life, as I said before. So I wanted to have a lifestyle that could afford me the ability to travel, to be able to do what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it, whenever I wanted for as long as I wanted. Um, and a lot of the times I do work a lot harder than probably the average person, but it's because I really enjoy the work that I'm doing. Um, so enjoyment inside of my work is another thing that is really critical to who I am as a person. But then right. on a strategic note, if forget about remote. What I think anyone should do is just look at a trend line. So to me, when we started looking at remote work with Time Doctor and Staff.com and even running remote, we saw a trend line that was resulting in the majority of the U.S. workforce working remotely. Um, and the previous projection was actually 2028 is when more than 50% of the workforce was working remotely. It was 4.5% pre-COVID. It's 46% today, right now. So we literally just had right. a five-year jump in like the month of March last year. We, we jumped forward in time by five years. But we did the same thing. Shopify, you know, there's like Main Street shops don't really exist anymore. Now they're a Shopify website or an Etsy website. Um, there's all of these trend lines that are kind of moving towards the digitization of the economy, meaning if you can digitize it, it's the economy that is, you're probably going to be more valuable in the future. And if you're not doing that, you're going to be less valuable. And anyone can see that. Um, you can see those trends now with a whole bunch of other things like Cryptocurrency, as an example, um, everyone's talking about how cryptocurrency is really expensive and Bitcoin is just shut up. It's going to go up higher. Uh, you know, it's like, that's a trend line. Do you want to get in now or later? It's, it's totally up to you. Uh, again, don't make any investment advice. I'm not a lawyer or more an accountant or anything like that. Don't suggest that you should don't come <laughs> to me and say, Hey, I bought all this Bitcoin and now it's worth nothing. But all of these things, like you can see it, you can see it right. happen. And if you just say, this is the thesis that is going to continue on over the next 10 years. And in at the end of those next 10 years, there's going to be a different world. Well, then you just got to plug in and be patient and grind out. Mm. The, the, oh, actually, that's the part that not, most people don't get, by the way, is patience, right? Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. Yeah, like because you are a, you are a pretty patient person, and you kind of have always beaten to a different drum, and yet you have like a lot more results. Uh, you know, I'm not obviously going to share 
your business stuff if you you want to feel free but but you guys have done very well for yourself not just this year but like all these years you've gotten better and better year after year despite any hurdles or bumps so like in my mind like I see you as one of the more patient people that I know actually even though you're you're deliberate like you're also patient and letting things play out and letting the market so I, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I know you see the world very differently than you know, maybe a lot of the startup bros, even though you're appealing to that crowd, you're not, I wouldn't consider you anywhere close to a startup bro. Like you, you have an old school, right if you will. What's that? I am wearing a hoodie right now, just to let you know. <laughs> that's, a dad, that's a dad thing though, right? So oh that's gosh. a dad thing. <laughs> so tell me about that. So where, where does that patience come from uh, in terms of seeing the, the trends and, and how you look at the world? I would say I wasn't patient before. That's come from me understanding that that's really how you build large-scale companies. I mean, we've chatted for, we've known each other for quite a while, Brad, and I think me and you have both seen mutual friends of ours go after the quick buck, which did make them cash today, but probably ended up costing them money a year, two years, five years from now. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when I'm saying, like, let's say you you want to build a course on how to take your company remote, as an example, right? You're going to sell people that course, right? You can do that. uh, You can make a couple quick bucks off of that. But instead, what if you just gave it away to people and what you were really selling was a tool like Time Doctor in the back end that we knew that you know is part of the technology stack that applies to remote work. Short term, selling the course makes you more cash today. Long term, giving it away for free and having the tools that help facilitate the technology stack that applies to remote work is way more profitable, like exponentially more profitable than, right. uh, than the former. But a lot of people just go after the, the quick buck. Um, that's effectively what I'm saying when it comes into patience. It's, and SaaS is entirely, <laughs> it's entirely a business model based off of patience. Um, because for those of you that don't know, it's a, it's software as a service business model, meaning right. instead of people paying like a hundred dollars for Time Doctor, instead you pay $10 a month as an example for a subscription or whatever it might be. Well, long-term, you might stick with me for five or six years. So I've made $600 with you with a subscription model, but I've made maybe a hundred if I got that money up front. And the other part of this, which is very exciting, is there's compounding interest on steroids inside of the SaaS model. So maybe you make a million dollars on year one, but by year five, you're making $20 million a year. And then by year 10, you're making $100 million a year. And it just keeps going. And the great thing about SaaS is every year that you stay in business, you have more com- companies that are referred over to you or customers to referrals. So right. your customer base, it's like a snowball effect. It just keeps going to the point in which most incredibly successful SaaS businesses now have no paid acquisition funnels whatsoever, which I think for a lot of people that are listening to this podcast, they 
they think that that's nuts, right? Because like you're supposed to get you're supposed to run Facebook ads and <laughs> and get deals, right? But like big companies, they're just referrals. Seventy eight percent of Salesforce's current business just comes from referrals. That's it. Because they just built a really good product. Look at Tesla. I don't want to hit on Elon Musk, even though I think he's awesome. Tesla spends zero money on advertising. Why? Because they put everything into product. It's just like, you need to build a big product, and then you need to start the little sparks that will lead to the fire of everyone loving your product and thinking that it's better than the next person's. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a perspective that is rare, right? Because like, you know, even with this, you know, even with this podcast, like my my secret evil plan, if I was Dr. Evil, uh, you know, kind of thing with this is 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 really like this is the best relationship building thing I've ever done in my whole career by far. And I mean, that's more than going to events, it's more than going to anything else because it's like the 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 stuff that's developed off this podcast already uh, and I'm, I'm not even, I don't even feel like I'm out of the dugout yet, let alone in the first innings of the game. Like it, it's just, it's beyond words, how, how much fun it's been just to, to, to get to know people and get people referring stuff to me, like people that I would have been, it would have been really difficult to connect with. And for me, that's always like, that's always the wealth is in, is in connections and friendships and, and stuff that, you know, down the line, you just never know where things go. Cause I, I think that's where, you know, having that product first orientation and saying like, Hey, who is it that we really want to take care of? And then just really take care of them. Well, in this world, that's so rare that it's almost like if you can just outlast everyone, I call it the, uh, the game of attrition, right? If you can just outlast everybody, you mm-hmm. win by default is, is kind of like the attitude. And that, and that's what I'm, I'm getting from what you're saying is it's like, you guys have been in business a long time. And probably if you wanted to could sell at some point in the future for a very nice, handsome sum of money. If you try, decided to do that, uh, when, or whenever you decide to do that, I'm sure something like that's probably crossed your mind before. Um, so I, th- I think that's, I think that's good. So, I mean, like with, with taking that product centric first, you know, product that, that mindset, right. Um, going forward, like let's speculate a little bit. Cause I think this is a great way to segue into like the wisdom, right. Because I, I believe there's there's a lot of wisdom that underpins that whole uh, uh, product first model. So like if you you know you got last year I know you had your, your first kiddo. You guys are are entering the fun land of, of parenthood. What kind of with what you've done so far? Let's fast forward you know a couple decades and your kiddo is like I want to be an entrepreneur like you. Like what do you tell them? to get started to kind of avoid some of the hurdles that you went through uh, in your journey of that? What would you share with them? Mm. Uh, well, I would say either don't go to university or go to university for something that's very theoretical. So something that refines your thinking process is probably what I would suggest that my children would do. Um, philosophy, as an example, is probably a really good direction. I wouldn't suggest right. you do anything like a business degree or, and if you want to become a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant, you obviously need to, you need to get licensed for that. So you need to go through a very specific system. But outside of that, um, you know, just really core kind of like thinking refinement activities inside a university is a really great way to do that. And then if you don't want to do that, I would suggest that you 
work for a tech startup that has received Series A funding and has under 10 employees and worked there for two years. And you'll get as much as probably a four-year degree in university if you want to pursue entrepreneurship because you're going to be able to do a little bit of everything in an organization that has less than 10 people in it that has received right. also funding so you can experiment with things that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to get access to, let's say, in a large corporate environment. And right. at the end of those two years, you should quit regardless of wherever you're at. Um, if you're smart enough to start with that company, you probably will have a little bit of equity as well. Usually the first 10 employees get a little slice of equity in exchange for working there. And uh, so you've, you've basically vested out of your equity at that point, quit that and start your own thing. And then figure out where you're at. And then also too, once you start your own thing, be patient in how you execute on it. I have uh, something I like to call the 100 rule, which is whenever I start something new, so let's say I'm gonna do a podcast, I have right. to do 100 podcasts before I can declare it a failure. Or I have to do 100 YouTube videos, I actually did do that with our YouTube channel. Um, I did 100 YouTube videos before I declared it a success or a failure. And I probably at like video 50, I would have declared it a failure. But around video 80, it started to turn around and we started to get traffic that uh, was coming to the YouTube channel. And now it is incredibly successful. So that's that other patience component is either go to university for something that just helps you think or don't. Right. If you're not going to go to a work for a tech startup under 10 employees that's got a series A level of funding, work for them for two years and then quit and start growing. I love it, man. That that uh, I know you. I know you got to jet to another appointment, but that a hundred times rule is. Uh, I never. I never heard anyone else articulate it that way. That's always how I've I've functioned too. Not not quite a hundred, but uh, you know, there's a there's that principle. I don't know if you ever heard of it called Wright's Law, which is is the the underpinning of Moore's Law with the computers and stuff. And it's like every time you double production, you you lower your cost a certain percentage. You know, whether it's you know just by through iteration and process improvement. And it's something that I've always kind of like looked at my own life as say like Lindy, Lindy effect and, uh, and, uh, rights law are like how I look at everything. Like I don't try to get everything perfect out of the gate because I know that longevity will take care of a lot of the, the extra fat on the meat, if you will, it'll, it'll just chisel it away by learning and iteration. So, um, I dig it, dude. So, uh, thanks for jumping on today and recording, man. This is, this has been really good and I'm, uh, I'm glad to, uh, glad to have you on the show and, uh, yeah, man. Uh, so before you go, where can everybody check out Time Doctor? Like, uh, just go to staff.com or do you do you want them to go somewhere else? That we can uh, just you, can, get you can go to staff.com. You can go to timedoctor.com and you can go to runningremote.com. Uh, if you're really just interested in like the future of remote work and where it's going, runningremote.com is probably the place for you. And if you want to get a taste <clears throat> of what we do there, just go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash running remote, where we have all of our talks up for free. Again, awesome. uh, as I had talked to you about uh, that, Brad, just give it away because the long term is I actually just want to own a piece of the technology stack. I don't really care about the information. So right. uh, it's all up there for free if you want to check it out. Love it, man. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on my uh, subscription list to make sure I watch all those. Awesome, man. Thank you for your time, buddy. Thanks for having me. 
You've been listening to the Office Free Entrepreneurs Podcast. For show notes, extras, and to get the Million Dollar Backpack Book, where we give you the blueprint to escape your office, visit escapeyouroffice.com.